Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IJ nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Stephanie Brenner, a Crohn's warrior, ostomate, and a licensed clinical social worker who has 13 years of experience working with clients with chronic illnesses. Through her journey as a chronic illness patient and clinician, she has developed a passion for helping people with health challenges live their lives to the fullest. When working with her clients, she uses cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, medical hypnotherapy, psychoeducation, and a strengths-based approach. And she's here today to share her journey with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steph, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here, and thank you for this podcast and what it does to help, I don't know, amplify and educate and decrease stigma, all the good things. So I appreciate being asked. Thanks. Thank you for that. I'm excited to have you here to to share your story. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a lot of tools in your toolbox for managing chronic illnesses that I definitely want to touch on today. But before we get there, let's go ahead and start off with your IBD story and share with us about when and how you were first diagnosed? Sure. Well, it all began back in 2000 when I was graduating high school. So I'll date myself. Um, I was a fairly healthy kid. I'm sure there were probably things before, um, but it was a sudden onset and had blood in my stool, lots of diarrhea, and knew to tell my mom about it because I felt very safe with her. She immediately took me to my pediatrician who then referred me to a GI. It's a pretty quick process of like, we, we know that you have ulcerative colitis. Um, we started on Azacol, Rawasa, enemas, you know. That's exactly what I started on. I had the Azacol, like the 15 whatever mm-hmm. big tablets, and then the Rawasa enemas. So that was... Oh, six times a day, the Azacol. It was all these pills. And a very, you know, it was like a whirlwind. Like, okay, we know what it is, so let's get treating it right now. None of those, I, they didn't really do much for me. Um, but they, they got me through to 2001. Cause right after I graduated, I was going to do a gap year in, uh, Europe. So I wasn't going to college like my peers and I, the Azacol and Rawasa, I, it got me through enough. I wouldn't say it was perfect, um, to survive. And I ended up being over in Europe for, uh, uh six months. I come back to the States for the second semester of that, you know, my first semester of college, but it was in the spring. And that's kind of when my colitis, I had my first major flare. So Azacol was not doing anything. Let's bump it up to Imuran. Let's try Lamotil. Let's try everything we can think. Let's, they're throwing prednisone at me like it's candy. There's so much prednisone. I think I was 20 milligrams three times a day for like 
iron tablets, infusions, nothing is really knocking out this flare. And I'm really trying to just get adjusted to college. I try and see in my doctors here in Chicago did not want me to go to college. And I said, well, I'm still going to go. What did they want you to do? Did they want you to just stay close to home with them? They wanted me close by. Yes. And I said, well, I'm near a teaching hospital, so I need you to collaborate. And I'm going anyways, because I want to live my life. At some point, because uh, the prednisone wasn't working, the Imuran methotrexate shots, we tried a Remicade. Um, At that point in 2000, that was the only thing there was. Nothing is working. And they're saying we need to do a J-pouch surgery. I had not heard of that. It was, I had never broken a bone or been in the hospital. So it felt like a pretty big deal. My parents were not very excited about it. We went to Mayo for a second opinion. Thankfully, we had access to that. They confirmed it's that dramatic. We need to take your colon out Um, and then, you know, do it in three steps based on your level of severity right now. So you're going to have this thing called an ostomy bag for about a year while we're doing these other two surgeries. What was it like to mentally process that being someone who had really never been in the hospital and then not even really knowing what this surgery was, hearing it for the first time and realizing this is what you were facing? How did you handle that mentally, emotionally? I don't know. I honestly, it felt like a foreign language. Like I really have no idea what you're talking about. I'm glad I have a diagnosis so we know what's going on, but where did this come from? And why isn't, why aren't any of your medication? It was very confusing. Why is my body so, flare number one is like so intense. So it was kind of confusing Um, I hadn't quite assembled my perfect medical team, so I was still trying to figure out where do I get my answers, how no one was connecting me to UOAA, the Ostomy Association, or connecting me with another person who had been through a J pouch. It felt very disorienting and confusing. So I kind of just got passed through the system and said, okay, great, I will do it. Obviously there's no other, they didn't offer me a lot of other options. I've tried, I'm trying everything you're saying, it's not working. So I just decided let's do it. Especially since Mayo confirmed it, I felt like, okay, it's only a matter of time. I can't live this quality of life. I need, I wanna go to college. Like I wanna move on with my life and just get healthy. So fine, do this thing. It was kind of pragmatic at the time and didn't, I don't know, just didn't spend too much time flip-flopping. It was like this this or this or keep doing what you're doing. Well, let's let's try it. So had the first surgery in September of the next year um, with the diverting loop ileostomy. They were nice enough to do it around my school schedule. So they're like, take your finals early. You'll have the ostomy all throughout that year. And then we'll do May for your second surgery. That's the proctectomy with the, the, they make the J pouch out of your small intestine, still have the bag, still keep it. 
And then in end of July, before you go back to school, we'll, re- we'll do the takedown surgery, which just means you don't have the ostomy. We'll reconnect everything. And then you're cured. You're done. Did they say that? Yeah, they did use that word, which I think, I think GIs are, well, I hope today they are smart enough. Things have changed over the last 20 years to never use that word. Even if you have cancer, even if you have, you see like these are chronic inflammatory autoimmune illnesses. They can morph and change. We always will need to surveil you and to just make sure that everything. So I remember doing like a ceremony for myself of, I graduated, went to the gift store and I bought, I forget, like a mug or something to be like, I will never forget, but I also will never see you again to these nurses, to the surgical team kind of marking it in the sand of like, I'm, I'm done with this weird GI thing. What a bizarro last two years. Now we can go back to life, but like, what a weird thing. This was bizarre, but like, okay, live to tell the story moving on. Didn't go that way. Did it? Did it? I mean, I got not, I'm trying to even remember pretty immediately. I had pouchitis, which they called it pouchitis. It felt exactly like familiar last two years, running to the bathroom, blood, urgent, like, it's like, this isn't good. This pouch is supposed to be the cure. What's going on? So I, we, they would put me on antibiotics, kept getting pouchitis over and over and over. And that was the first tip off that, hmm. But they wanted to give it a shot. Let's stay positive. Um, It didn't. It just kept failing. Um, I kept having flares or I'd have, I don't know, have to go to the ER for fluids or I'd have a obstruction. Um, I started getting strictures of my pouch. So to even get in and look and see what's going on, it would be really hard and they'd have to dilate the strictures, which were very painful. All signs were pointing to this pouch is not as good as they said it would be. And the mucosa was showing chronic inflammation. So on a cellular level, they were getting those clues. At the same time, the way that I make peace with it is there was no other options. There were no other meds. So they would have done a surgery anyways. Something was having to change. Would they have given me a J pouch? Probably not. Probably a temporary loop. I don't know. Hindsight is 2020. I don't, I'm not litigious. I'm not looking. I I just look to mentally make it make sense because it really felt like they sold me this and this is what I traded it in for. And it wasn't much better. And I think that's what's so dangerous about using the word cure and why I was surprised like they actually said that because it really gets your hopes up like this is it. Everything's going to yeah. be great. This is the magic. It's the magic pill. It's the magic cure. We we do this step and then I'm awesome. And then when it's not, it's hard to like you're saying to mentally make sense of that. Yeah. The expectation versus reality. It was slowly, 
slowly parting and I didn't know what to do with that. At one point it was in 2007. So I was living with this J pouch, trying to think positive, dealing with pouchitis flare after pouchitis flare. And Humira was a medicine that was approved for Crohn's. And like that month they got me on it. Let's try it. See if it heals the pouch, keeps things at bay. It still was showing chronic inflammation, but it was helping a little. And again, what else is there to do? Take the pouch out right then. That's a whole nother surgery. Let's just try and keep, keep things at bay as best as possible. 2010 rolls around and I start noticing a little bulge, like a little bump. And I think that it's, I was, I was, I went to my gynae first because it, I thought it was a Bartholin's gland cyst and mm, just kind of was one day as I was showering, it was kind of gradual. Um, my gynae at the time, I don't see her anymore, misdiagnosed it. It's probably a Bartholin's gland cyst. Let's just do some sitz baths and, you know, We'll keep you on Humira, maybe bump up. We'll, we'll put some 6MP in there and see if that helps it. We did an MRI eventually because it kept bothering me. And I was like, these drugs, maybe it's a yeast infection. Let's put you on antibiotics. There's a lot of kind of passing me along. Like, call me in a couple months and tell me if it's the MRI of the pelvis didn't show anything because it was so low. They didn't ask apparently they did the pelvis, but not like the very rectal stump, the very bottom of it. So eventually I get a second opinion um, from a different gynae who is a godsend and she very thoroughly exams everything, goes through my chart. I was like, this is, this is an abscess. There's probably a fistula behind it. You need to go to your GI. You need to get a fistula gram, a very specific image you need to do. Like very, she was so pointed and direct and actually changed the course of my disease treatment forever in a good way, also in a crushing way. But at least now I know what this thing is. Why does it hurt to sit down? This is very confusing and people are just trying to guess at it. Um, it's not working so we do a fistula gram, we do a bunch of tests, we find out there is a fistula. At that point, I never heard what that is. It was a big blow because it was rectovaginal. So knowing I've had a lot of traumatic, you know, but things happen in the last couple of years, but now there's this tunnel my body decided to create from my rectum to my vagina. Why? Why would it do that? This is something called perianal Crohn's. This happens. We didn't know you had Crohn's. We thought it was, you see, because it was confined to your goal. So it was kind of like a whole different, almost like a huge pivot and I think that was my lowest mentally, not only the physical suffering, but wrapping my brain around the new diagnosis, even though it's all IBD and now we're learning it's more of a spectrum, but that felt 
like a huge blow because toxic positivity, (laughs) I would tell myself, at least I don't have Crohn's. At least you got, you see, again, I was 20 and didn't know any better, but that helped calm me down. At least you don't have the bad one that could be anywhere from mouth to anus, like Gosh, I feel sorry for those people. I got the one that has the cure and I got the cure. So yay, something to be grateful for. And really that was the point where I was like, oh, I don't have that. I have the one that I feel bad for people for. And that made me feel like very disoriented and depressed. We still at that point are trying to figure out what to do, lots of antibiotics, the abscess kind of comes and goes. Um, Crohn's is definitely the new diagnosis. The biopsies are showing that. Um, So once they found it, they figured out we need to treat it. So we tried at the time a few smaller surgery, like the, it's called a rectal advancement. So they tried to like put a flap of skin. Sounds ridiculous now. I don't know if they even do it. Where they're like, we're going to go in and you know, that hole your body created, they had described it kind of like termites, but no bugs. So they would say like your body kind of like, there was pressure somewhere and there's so much pressure that it just like created a new tunnel. And so we're just going to put a piece of healthy tissue to block the tunnel and then maybe it will help. And at that point I was like, well, I don't want a giant surgery. I'll do this outpatient thing. Great. Odds are low. It will work. I don't care. Let's try it. Definitely did not work. Um, for me woke up with it. It was even worse. And then trying, uh, what else did they do the Plug. I think they did fiber and glue. There was a couple different smaller things that I was like, let's just try and, you know, close the hole. Well, you close the hole, then it just eventually just erodes through again. You're not actually fixing the problem. You're just putting a, a Band-Aid on it. Yes, literally. So at, a, at 2012, I'm tired of doing these like not experimental, but these smaller things. And I was like, give me the ostomy back. I have had one. I know what it's like. None of Humira is not closing it. Six MP, none of these procedures. I'm ready. Just like I need it to. And they were saying that will really stop it. Thankfully it did. So I said, give me the temporary. I'm not signing up for anything giant, but just like do the loop again. I'll take it. So I get the temporary ostomy and I just decide, you know what, this is actually working decently for me. I'm not, I'm not ready to consider a permanent, maybe at some point everything will calm down or maybe it will be, there's going to be enough research that I could like try another drug and then reconnect and see what happens. But the more I'm talking with my team They're saying, we don't put J pouches in people with Crohn's disease for a reason. They don't work. They fail. If you have colitis, which we thought you had at the time, we do. They actually have great success. So at some point, your pouch may fail. It's already kind of doing some funky things, or it has. 
but we understand why you don't want to give up on it completely and that you want you don't want to have that whole it would be a big surgery to take that out and give you a permanent ostomy so let's just kind of watch and wait as you have this temporary ostomy so long story short i've had that stoma since 2012 so it's been 11 years I started having issues again and findings, you know, it was getting so strictured. They wanted to monitor that even though it was dormant and diverted, they wanted to see what was going on in that pouch, making sure that it was not cancerous. The pouch did not like being dormant. It didn't like being used. It was, it's just... I loved having it diverted so that I could, I knew like I could care for my stoma and it was going to work, but it started having these spasms, a lot of like phantom poop pains, uh, mucus, like there would be like these, almost like these attacks. It felt like a very intense. So I knew that it was a matter of time that we would need to do the big surgery, which is, I called it the big surgery, the uh, total proctocolectomy. We need to take the J patch out. You know, as the years go on, they can't even fit a pediatric scope. The dilations aren't working. They literally can't get in. It's like a brick wall is what they said. So we can't even monitor you. We probably need to take it out because if it's that strictured, it could be really inflamed. And I start having bladder symptoms, pelvic symptoms, which later we find out, well, an inflamed J pouch just sitting there dormant is right up again in the abdominal cavity is pressing up against the bladder. Every time I would do these uh, bladder cystostrophies, cystostrophies. Cystoscopy. I've had, yes. I've had one, which is why I know what it is. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. They would say, you know, you're bladder looks pristine. And I would be like, well, thank you. Why are we here? <laughs> thank you. Why, why are we here? And why am I having to go to the bathroom a hundred times a day and feeling like when I go a drop comes at, like I never had bladder issues. So thankfully since fast forward to today, I don't have to go in to see urologists, but just interesting that this pouch that was so inflamed and just I say it's a little graph. I say it's rotting. This like rotting organ that wasn't ever meant to be in there was just angry and kind of causing all the systems around spreading its hatred wherever it could get. So I know that I need to get this thing out. And it's, they're saying like, when we do it in the ostomy community, we call it a Barbie butt. So they are ironically, the Barbie movie came out. So I'm, it, it's a great year for Barbie butts. Were you still on the Humera at this point? No, I was off of it. It really wasn't doing anything. They had retried Remicade. It had caused anaphylactic shock, had to go to the ER. That's not going to be an option. Nothing else is on the market. So there's no clinical trials that would apply to you. We need to get this thing out. But maybe I can just delay it and not have to go through this big surgery. And a permanent, once it's permanent, I had a lot of anticipatory anxiety. Once it's permanent, I can't ever reverse it. I don't want to commit to that. What if I 
what if there's a cure? What if there's a drug that might help? Uh, the permanence really, really shook me up. My doctor continually, I still, I really love him to this day, would say, I really think this is, if I were you, I would do this. I really think this is going to help you. He was not the one who did the J pouch, by the way. That was round one as a newbie. I was like, I want to trust you, but I don't know if I trust my body. So I just, I'm going to just wait until I absolutely have to. Not a good idea. We don't, emergency surgery versus planned. How was your quality of life at this point as you're holding out hope and trying to, to wait? Really rough. I mean, you know, I'm trying to date in my 20s. I'm a teacher in the Chicago Public Schools. Then I decide to get my master's and social work. I'm trying, I'm at my internship. I'm working at the hospital with cancer patients. I'm trying to live my life, but I'm wearing a pad. I'm running to the bath. I'm having to take a lot of sick days. I'm getting a lot of infections. I'm feeling like it's running my life. Even though I have this temporary ostomy, I'm getting these infections underneath my wafer. I was having terrible Again, this thing is right behind it. Terrible inflammation, seeing every dermatologist. No ostomy bag wanted to stick to me because I have an adhesive allergy and also have all sorts of inflammation throughout my abdominal area. So it was quite a, I was trying to bargain with myself that it wasn't that bad. It was terrible. It was really, really terrible. And I think I had, the frog in the pot analogy of like, if you, you as chronic illness, we get used to like a certain level of terrible and you know, minimize our suffering. It is amazing what we learn to live with because it's, you're certainly not the first one I've heard that from. I know I experienced it myself and I hear it from everyone. It's like, you just, you find ways to mentally cope with things getting worse and worse and worse. And you don't, when you're in it, those progressions, you don't notice them, for lack of a better word, as much as, say, someone on the outside looking in. Right. Like a fresh set of eyes would say, no, this is not a good quality of life. Your doctor is saying, let's get the ostomy permanent. It's time. It's time. And I'm tired of waiting on you. No, he was very patient because ultimately is my decision. And I understand body autonomy but I could have used a little more kick in the pants. I don't know if it would have gotten through mentally. I was like, I'm not, I'm just not to that level. So the thing that got me to that level, unfortunately, happened back in 2017. So I had actually met my partner, had just gotten married. It was lovely. I was in such like a great space. And it was right around our one year anniversary. It's actually coming up. And I started getting some hip pain, back pain. I've had a lot of hip and back pain through the years. I've had a lot of open abdominal surgery. So, of course, there's going to be scar tissue. I've gone to physical therapy and it's managed. Um, So I didn't think much of it, but it was pretty severe and pretty aggressive. So it came on quick. And then I was like, I can't walk. I can't, I literally can't walk. Like it's locked as if I can't move. And it, it got more severe as a night went on. And I just told my husband, I think we, this is, 
I think we have to call an ambulance. I don't think I've ever called an ambulance, but I think this is the time. So we call an ambulance and, oh, God, help us all. The ambulance, the EMT says, oh, well, do you think this is anxiety? You know, I have anxiety. I take medication for anxiety. So I think this might just be anxiety and didn't take my blood work, didn't take me to the hospital. Um, Just said, well, since it's kind of dying down a little bit, took my vital, you know, I'm not sure why that happened. If only how I make sense of it, it allowed my partner to take me to the hospital of my choice, which was where my team was at versus the one that was closest to the house, which is not my, where I would have preferred. So we get to the ER, they do a bunch of tests. They find out that I have a liver abscess, something I'd never heard of before, and that I'm in septic shock. So from the labs and the test, they need to operate right away. It all was very quick. And I wake up in the ICU, which I had never been to and was there for five days. So that experience was a whirlwind. It was super traumatic. And it also, when talking with the doctors in the ICU and then the following weeks that I was in the hospital, it it gave me such clarity that this is from the J pouch. As soon as you're better and healed from this traumatic stay, you're getting that thing out. It's an, it's been decided for you. Um, at one point they told my loved ones, I had 50, 50 odds of making it out of the ICU. So this was on our first anniversary. I didn't know any of this. I was just kind of dissociated and, um, it was very confusing. I also didn't know, is this from Crohn's? Eventually they would say, yes, this is IBD related. But I thought, do I have another liver? Do I have some new liver thing? No. But it was quite a two-month recovery knowing that I had the big surgery I was dreading ahead. I was very not happy. But at the same time, the decision was made. So it did make things, I don't know just was like, it's on the calendar. It's happening. So there was a piece of, I don't have to waffle anymore. I had already interviewed three surgeons and gotten their opinions. Thankfully I had time. So it wasn't an emergent surgery. I didn't wake up with it. So I picked my surgeon and we put it on the books and he had told me there's a 50, 50 odds of you waking up and needing another surgery. This is a big surgery. I'm going to go through all the adhesions. I'm going to take that J pouch out. So they were in there for hours and hours and hours and hours. Then I'm going to make sure to get that fistula track cleaned out. Then I'm going to, so there were so many parts, different surgeons. It was a whole thing. And then you're, we're going to take out your rectum and anus. You're never using those again. We're going to sew up the backside, which is why it's like a Barbie butt. We're going to drawstring and you know all those layers will heal from the inside out and you'll have basically a big wound from your belly button kind of like the c-section scar that i had previously all the way back to the back side and you won't be able to sit 
for a while. So you, you're going to need to lay because you don't want to put pressure on that womb. So you're just going to need to like lay on your sides for a couple months. Maybe try a recliner. You know, like the, there's, there's a lot of preparation thinking, okay, this, this is why I was putting it off. Okay. But we're going to do it. We got, we got all the supports. We had loving, available family. We had accessible health insurance. I've got providers at a teaching hospital. We go in and it was somehow they got it out. Everything went smoothly-ish. And I was one of the 50% that didn't need a wound vac and, you know, all these follow-up surgeries. Finally, something goes good. <laughs> I know. I know. Again, my narrative is as soon as we got that rotting, angry J pouch out, my body was breathing a sigh of relief. She was happy again. She was like, oh, that thing was just <laughs> spewing, just trying to like cause inflammation everywhere it could. And then it was out and I was like, wow, okay, I did it. Like I'm, I'm healed again, never going to say graduated or cured, but like now I, now this is my new normal. I, I'm not on any medicines, knock on wood. And what year was that surgery? That was in 20, we got married 2016, 2017. Yeah. So no medications, do the surgery and then you're off medications at that point. And then. How has yep. life been since then? Life been since then, in terms of Crohn's, non-existent and beautiful, quiet. Um, I would also say there's other. I have other friends in the community who have a Barbie butt, and it wasn't there night and day. It just changed everything for me. I'm 2017. 18, 19. I'm five years out, six years out, and couldn't be happier. The ostomy irritation died down. The bladder stuff died down. Um, all I do is if I see my GI, which he, there's literally, I have no symptoms, so I haven't had to see him these five years. I wanted him to renew my ostomy supplies. And the nurse was like, well, you're a new patient because we haven't seen you. I'm like, well, he used to be on speed dial. Like, I have his cell phone. Like, I don't, you should not. Okay, I'll come see him just for whatever. <laughs> that that speaks volumes that I'm not even in the system. So we hug. All I do is just say, I wish I had done it sooner. I wish I had been able to hear it from you. It gave me my life. I'm so happy. I'm thriving. I get to do a career that I love. I get to enjoy anything that I want. So I, I would also say I traded, there's not nothing. I still do pelvic floor physical therapy. I still have to work with my gynae because I have some vulvar Crohn's. So that's super right. Whenever you are making a medical choice, it's never simple because it's usually you're between a rock and a hard place. It's almost a non-choice. Do you want to do this and go through immense pain or do you want to die? It's 
Thank you for such a generous choice. But you get to choose who cuts you open. So have at it. Like it's almost comical. These like, well, you know, I don't want to choose for you, but I'm very glad to have the life that I get to have right now. I also hold lightly that at some point I might need meds again. At some point I might need revisions. I might have more... I don't know, bowel obstructions and need resections. I just know this disease is a beast and I am just thankful that this this decision has given me this much. You know, again, you, it's all a risk. You don't know. If someone had been able to guarantee you're going to get six good years, you're going to get 20 good years, I would have done it in a heartbeat, but you don't know that. And so I have compassion for myself of it. It was, it needed to unfold how it unfolded with me. And if telling my story can help one person as they're trying to waffle and make their own decisions, um, it's a really tough place to be in. So I'm very thankful. Um, the one other curveball that I dealt with was um, I have the BRCA2 mutation, so a genetic mutation that makes me more prone to different cancers. And so knowing that they've been doing surveillance on me for a decade and had a few false alarms with uh, breast biopsies and then got cancer in 2019. So it was early DCIS, stage zero. Thankfully, I felt like my surveillance was working. I love my team. And at that point, got a double mastectomy with reconstruction. That was a huge trip that, I mean, it was a whole not that doesn't really apply to the listeners, but at the same time, it was a really interesting contrast of having like severe perianal Crohn's talking with people and then having like the mildest breast cancer stage zero and not having to go through chemo or radiation but also still having to lose, you know, both my breasts and feeling like I've already lost so many organs. How many, like I joke, I feel like a bionic woman, like how many organs are optional, right? I mean, we don't really need those. Um, so I don't know. There's still, again, how great to not have that breast cancer, but there's still like the after effects of like riding the roller coaster of what if it comes back, trying to do the ovarian surveillance. So just like GI, there's never, you never arrive. That's so reductionistic to be like, and now everything's great. Everyone should get permanent ostomies. There is this pressure for positivity, I think sometimes from the community or just to make it simplistic, the before and the after, and tie it up with a little bow and stay positive because you're a warrior. And it's still a struggle. Some days it is. There is, there's nuance to it. There's layers. You're holding so much hope. This is a better quality of life. I am so grateful. And yet I've lost so much. There's so much grief. And it's that both and, and having room to acknowledge all of it because it gets kicked up, acknowledging the trauma, acknowledging, 
and noticing when I minimize some things or when I want to just block it out and not talk. I think part of my healing journey is just talking about it and sharing it because it was bad, but I wanted to help someone else, you know? So talk to me about some of the things that have helped you, because I kind of want to wrap this into your career too, because I'm guessing that part of your journey is part of what took you on to your career path. And a lot of these tools that you have that you're able to help your patients who have chronic illnesses, I'm assuming that you used some of those tools in your own healing and your own mindset of being able to grapple with these very mentally tough places in life of where you've had to be. So talk to me about how your IBD journey, your health journey, really, even with the cancer as well, kind of how that led you into what you're doing, the work you're doing now, and what some of those tools are that you share with your patients that I'm guessing you used on yourself as well to deal with, as you mentioned, this, it's not done. It's, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. My desire to be in this field came from lived experience as a patient when I was going through making all of these medical decisions, even in my twenties, when I was, it was my first career, I was a teacher. My GI at the time had a mental health provider, a GI psychologist on staff. He also had a GI dietitian, one-stop shopping. This is integrated care. It's top of the line. I wish every patient had access to it. I had never had mental health. I'd had mental health support, a therapist, but I hadn't had one that specialized in GI. So as a quick shout out, it's a growing field. And if anybody on the podcast is listening and wants support, I can't see you unless you're in Illinois, but there's a whole network of us. So it's a smallish world, but we're expanding. And it's called the the foundation that we're all kind of trained and mentored through is called the Rome Foundation, like the city in Italy, Rome, R-O-M-E. And so if you go to uh, Rome GI Psych, P-S-Y-C-H, there's a whole uh, directory. So you could search for, maybe you can put it in the show notes just in case you're like, hey, that sounds kind of cool. I want I, I want to see if there's any in my state or area where I live in the world. So having that support was really, really helpful. And eventually I was like, this is so cool. I want to do what you, I want to switch my career. I've always wanted to be a therapist. I did a psych minor, but teaching is more secure job options, but I want to do, I want to go back to school. Should I become a psychologist? Should I do like, what route should I do a clinical counselor, social work? So after, after doing some deep diving, I decided to become a social worker, but that was my first taste of using tools and having someone that truly got it and all, knew all my doctors, knew all, knew the whole system I was working within, helping me advocate for myself. So um, as I did my master's, I tried as much as I to take as many classes as I could in health and also mental health. You had to pick one track. And I was like, I refuse. These two are so integrated. I'm going to do a double because I can't not... There, there's just, you can't unblend those two. Um, 
it was, I would say, starting in oncology, this was pre-camp before I had my cancer, was very eye-opening. I learned a lot. It was very heavy, intense work, lots of end-of-life hospice things. I knew it wasn't going to be forever for me. I would burn out. So I knew I wanted to move towards chronic illness. I love GI. I could I'd talk with about poop forever. So I was like, yes, this is, this seems like the right fit. So it was kind of building a private practice as I worked at the hospital and it just took off. And here we are today. The, the biggest tools that I feel like chronic illness patients need are having, being seen, being known, having someone else in it with them professional, huge, a support group through Crohn's Colitis Foundation, a podcast, hearing other people's story. We need to get this internalized stigma out of us. We all have it. It's not our fault. This is just the world we live in. Just like homophobia, just like internalized sexism, all the, all the isms. We need to be actively extracting them or just looking and challenging. Like, what are these thoughts I'm telling myself? Are they helpful? Are they kind? Would I talk to a friend like that? So, so a lot of working with your self-talk and thoughts, um, lots of breathing techniques to work with anxiety also, sometimes con- consulting with a psychiatrist if you need medication. Also, EMDR can be really great for trauma, somatic work. Um, I think just having a growth mindset of like, I, I didn't get to choose this part. Like there's, this is the circle of control. And then there's a lot outside my control, but I can focus in on the things that I can control, like my mind, my mindset, who, who are my support people? Who's my medical team? Am I being clear about my goals and expectations? So trying to really shift from there's nothing I can do. I'm hopeless and helpless to like an empowerment resilience. I don't have to love this and I don't have to be excited about my illness. I don't also don't have to tell everyone. I always like to just because I'm on a podcast doesn't mean everyone needs to shout from the rooftops like, yay, I, you know, I want to tell my story. But having a way to make sense of it, I think with a therapist, like narrative therapy. So having um, bibliotherapy, so reading different books about it and then like crafting your own journey, honoring what you've been through taking the time to even look at it, naming it, um, and then enjoying the days and the moments that you get, living that to the fullest, but also holding the grief and saying, it's both. It's both. I'm going to choose to look for those glimmers of hope, but I also am going to honor that some days they feel a lot harder to find. And I can, I can approach myself with tenderness and curiosity and not be judgmental. Um, so those are, those are the biggest ways that I trying to find some ways to get comfortable in your body. So like I do have a yoga mat in my office. I don't always use it. I'm not a licensed yoga therapist, but trying to find gentle movement that feels good, trying to find uh, physical touch that feels safe because when we've had medical trauma, even it's been by, from our doctors, our surgeon, et cetera, 
even though we know they're safe, it still has felt violating. It's felt terrible, you know, so, or it feels very clinical. So like how can trying to figure out ways to receive touch, it could be just like petting your dog or cat, trying, trying to like help patients basically integrate and like get back into their bodies. Cause so many of us, when we've been through this, we just would rather not think about it. Let's go, 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 stay busy. I don't want to like deal with whatever delayed grief is buried in there. I don't want to touch it. And so just having little windows of time to check in with yourself and say, whatever feelings come up are just clues. They're not good or bad. It's okay. I love hearing that there are so many ways for patients to to get this support, like that there are some powerful resources for patients to be able to feel better, to get through some of these emotional traumas and get past. Because once you get past that physical part, there is that mental and emotional part that's sometimes in shock. And, and we don't necessarily always know that there's tools that are out there that can help us through that next part of the journey, which are just yeah. as important. Yeah. And some people, the delayed grief is very real because when you're in the crisis, you are just surviving. You're taking, you're getting your pick line changed. You're getting your ostomy supplies figured out. You're cleaning the wound, whatever it is, you're in survival mode. There's not always any spoons or energy to deal with that. So the mental and emotional piece, a lot of people kind of compartmentalize it without even knowing it. They're just like powering through. And then when things calm down, there's kind of this delayed confusion, apathy, depression, anxiety, where it's like, this doesn't even make sense. I'm not having a flare right now. And I'm feeling all the feelings. Well, it's your body finally has a little bit of room to breathe. And it's like, Hey, this is still here. I'd still love some attention. This was very confusing for me. Could you please attend to my heart and my, these thoughts that are tormenting? So just knowing like it's very normal or to have them even just throughout the, the journey of chronic illness, it'll, it's, it's like we're, we circle through it. We never, we never arrive. We just work with it and you, you get to know your own patterns, triggers. And that's, that's the hope is that, oh yeah, of course that, that terrible thing, that lie that I tell myself, oh, yep, there it is. That's interesting. Oh yeah. Anxiety. I wonder if this is from this or that, like that we approach it with like total acceptance and curiosity, like, oh, my brain just trying your best, but it's not really working. Let's, let's work with her, give her a little support today. Um, I love that. Yeah. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is recently in 2021, you helped put together the pediatric Crohn's guidebook that was published in yes. 2021. So tell me a little bit about what that is, how you got involved with it, where people can find sure. that. Sure. It's online. It's free. It was a really cool project that I got to be involved in through the National Alliance for Caregiving. They, We worked on it for months and months, and there was really not a lot of research for caregivers of patients with Crohn's disease. So we just wanted to kind of put all of the resources in one place there is a ton of 
collaborators and it's great. So it's a great free resource. Obviously there were sponsors and people that helped make it happen, uh, but it's online and I would, there's also paper copies you can order, but I like to keep some in my office just so if I have anyone who's a caregiver, especially pediatric. So it's like, you know, a parent of someone dealing with it. It's, I want, I want it in every office of every peds GI office needs to have it too. Just, it can be a very overwhelming world. Obviously the patient person, I see a lot of patients. I also see a handful of caregivers or partners. So just knowing they, they have such a unique journey and there's a lot of patterns we see in the research with them that they need their own supports. They have their own anxiety and depression that they have to deal with. So it was a cool project to be involved in. I'm, I can, again, I can link to the, put a link in the show notes or something. I definitely will. I'll put that in the show notes for sure. So we have covered a lot. Your journey has just been a very tough journey. And so we've covered a lot. What, throughout all of that, what kind of advice, final piece of thought would you like to share with the listeners out there who are also facing IBD or even a caregiver also facing someone with IBD? I think... Normally, I would say be your own advocate, but that feels a little too cliche right now. I think it would be the the advice I give to myself is give yourself permission to be fully human. And whatever is going on inside your brain, your heart, your body, allow it. Don't fight it. Don't suppress it. Just be with it. And if it's overwhelming, ask for help. Ask a friend, ask, go to a support group, ask your doctor how to find a therapist. Try and get resources for when you, when you check in with yourself and you notice, wow, this is really heavy or I'm really noticing a strong trigger reaction to be with it and to honor it, respect it and say, hey, I, this is probably from something. I'm going to let there be room for it. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't need to be, don't need to be the hero. We're all human. We're all just, there was one quote, I can't remember who said it, but it's like, we're all just walking each other home. So no one's, you could say it's a little morbid, but at the same time, I'm like, we're all just on this journey of life together. No one's doing it better. We're all finding our own way. So just reach out, honor your process, take the next steps, keep going, but also it's okay to be fully human. I love that. That's great advice. So if people want to either follow you, learn about what the work you do in your clinic is, where they can go to you if they're in the Illinois area, or if there's any other place that they can find you online, where can people go? They can go to my website. It is the name of my practice, chronicillnesspsychotherapy.com. And there's a contact page on there. So if anyone is searching for a therapist, wants to get connected to a GI therapist in their area, again, Rome Foundation is great, but I definitely have a passion for helping people navigate that because it can be so overwhelming. So if there's no availability in your area, how do you, then where do you go? So trying to really make 
GI behavioral health accessible is a huge passion of mine. So even though we wouldn't work together if you're not here or if I was full, which I usually am, but just knowing like I really want to connect patients to that's a social worker in me. Like I want you to get to the resources. So I do end up spending hours of my week just trying to get people connected, almost like a matchmaker. It's a hard process. There's a shortage. But yeah, so go to chronic illness psychotherapy, go on the contact page. And uh, yeah, I look forward to chatting with you if you need help. Perfect. I'll definitely put that in the show notes so that people can find you easily and, and get the help. It has been such an incredible journey conversation talking with you today. Is there any last things you want to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Oh, the one one other thing was that I did a program that's online. It's free for people with ostomies. So it was ostomies and mental health. And it was called Ostomy Academy. And it's on UOAA's website. So if you're a support group leader or if you just are curious and have an ostomy and want more mental health support, I kind of go into all these like tools and resources. It's like a deep dive. It was I think it was a PowerPoint. Yeah, it was a PowerPoint. So it's a little heady. Um, but yeah, it's up there. It will be up there hopefully for for good. So I wanted to at least highlight that just as like, great. If you want more info, go there. Perfect. That's a great resource. Thank you again for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me a Coffee link to send a little love or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.